adore our shepherd king this morning as we have done so in singing, in the reading of his word, and as we continue in adoring him this morning through hearing and receiving the word of God given to us in scripture and being preached. If you haven't already, uh, please turn in your Bibles. We're going to be spending our time this morning in Jonah chapter 3 as it was just read. Being mindful of our great need for God's help and his gracious willingness to aid us. Let's look to him in prayer and ask that he would help as we consider his word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we do come to you this morning so mindful of our great need and how often we can rightly sing and say that weak is the effort of our hearts and cold our warmest thoughts. But Father, in this same state of need and weakness, we are comforted, greatly comforted by the assurance that when we see you as you are, that we will praise you as we ought. And so, Father, we ask in light of that, that you would send your spirit, that we might see, that we might adore the risen Jesus this morning as he is, made plain for us here in the very pages of scripture. And we're asking very specifically that your word would be effectual, that it would transform hearts and minds, that you would cause it to reshape desires and will. And we ask that you would help me as your servant to speak with clarity, to speak in faithfulness, and to speak with great conviction. Father, we ask, do all of this, that you might receive the praise and the honor that you deserve. Help us for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, as you take time to read through the book of Jonah, and specifically here this morning, Jonah chapter 3, as it was just read for us, you may have noticed that the narrative set forth there begins and ends with the very action of God. God is, in a sense, the very bookends that frame up the 10 verses that are here in chapter 3. God initiates by bringing his word to Jonah. And God continues all the way through the narrative by withholding his hand of judgment. God is the beginning and the end of everything that we are told here in these short 10 verses. And the action of God is one of really these important threads that are woven through the book. Because as you read through the narrative, you find that God is absolutely in control of everything that is happening here, down to the very specific elements of God controlling the wind, God controlling the waves. God even controls fish in the sea to do his bidding. As you keep reading chapter 4, God commands plants to rise up, worms to eat plants, And it's very clear when you put all of this together that the book of Jonah is yet another testimony that we have that salvation is entirely and exclusively of God. It is then a reminder that the book of Jonah is not ultimately about a great fish. It's not about a great city, which is Nineveh. It's not even about Jonah himself. All of this is secondary. God is primary. And if we were to miss that in reading through the book of Jonah, we would miss the entirety of what has been given to us here in Scripture. This is important because this 
Same reality of God being the great initiator that moves through all of Scripture. It is the reminder that it is the same truth for our lives today and our circumstances this day. God is orchestrating every change. He is sovereignly overseeing every circumstance according to the counsel of his will. So Jonah 3 essentially shows us how God's gracious purposes will always succeed, even though they often follow this surprising and unexpected path, Jonah's experience proves out what the Apostle Paul himself would remind the church of Corinth. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Nowhere is that seen more plainly than here in this portion of the narrative. And being mindful of all of this, let's move through the passage this morning considering these themes. As you read through it, you see these themes of grace and obedience, and then belief and repentance, and then lastly, kindness and mercy. Let's consider this first theme of grace and obedience that are wed together. You see this there in the first four verses of chapter 3. And as you read, and as it was just read, the first couple of verses of chapter 3, they are meant to stand really in direct contrast to the first three verses of chapter 1. It's almost as if there was a repeat, as if there was an error in the script and there was a repetition, but it is no error, it is a repetition with great purpose. If you want to flip back over, look at chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1 reads, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And then what do we have in chapter 3? Verse 1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Here's the same call from the same God given to the same prophet, and this time we're told that Jonah arose, not to flee, but to go this time. Now, as wonderful as this is, let's not forget something. Let's not forget that the circumstances of Jonah's life and the mission that he has been called to have not changed. The call in chapter 3, verse 1, remains just as scandalous and offensive as it was in chapter 1, verse 1. Nineveh is still a greatly wicked Gentile city with a reputation for horrendous evil, and it is a city-state that is actually a, a great threat to the people of God. None of that has changed. It is a scandalous thought to think that Yahweh would even consider warning them, much less making himself known to them. So if Nineveh hasn't changed, and God hasn't changed, what has? What I'm asking is, what is it that prompted Jonah's obedience here in chapter 3, verse 1, 
versus his disobedience in chapter 1, verse 1? Well, the answer is grace. What has changed is that Jonah has experienced the grace of God. Jonah has experienced something, and when sinners taste the grace of God, what happens? Delightful obedience springs forth. A newfound desire to please God, to honor him, to obey him. There was nothing in Jonah that merited this favor. There was nothing that obligated God to come to Jonah again a second time, and yet he does. In fact, that's the very definition of grace, isn't it? Grace is undeserved favor given by an unobligated giver. If at any moment in this situation, Jonah deserved what God gave him, or God was obligated to somehow give to Jonah the word of the Lord, there's, there's no grace here. But what comes to Jonah a second time and what he experienced in chapter 2 is grace. If you want a refresher on what this looks like, then just read through the first two chapters. But we could summarize it in this way. Jonah sought to flee from the presence of the Lord. He wanted to go where Yahweh was not named, where he was not prayed to, where you could not find a synagogue in which his word was expounded. He wanted to flee as far as he could from the felt presence of God. Thus he finds himself on a ship going down to Tarshish. And in that very ship, a storm, because of the very wind that God hurled upon the sea. And in that very ship, these same sailors who are crying out to any sort of God that they could think of, even compelling Jonah to cry out to your God, perhaps he's the true God and he'll hear us. And Jonah tells him that he is a Hebrew, that he fears Yahweh, the same God that made the heavens, that made the seas and the dry land. And he tells them, all of this has come upon you because of me. And so Jonah resolves in his mind that it would be better for these men than to perish, than actually for me to perish. So throw me overboard. Throw me into the storm and it will cease its raging. The sailors eventually do that, throwing Jonah overboard. But even there, Jonah is not done with. The Lord pursued him by sending the wind and sending the storm. But even there, God's grace pursues Jonah. Because instead of Jonah sinking down into the deep to drown and die a silent death, God sends a fish. God sends a great fish to swallow Jonah, not to destroy him, but to deliver him. To rescue him from the deep and to bring him out upon dry land. And it's there in the belly of the fish in Jonah chapter 2 that we have this great prayer where Jonah says, I sank down to the gates of death. And yet, he heard me. He listened to my prayer. He inclined to me. Jonah experienced grace. It was here that Jonah called out in his distress. The Lord answered him. He tried to flee, but the Lord pursued and grace prevailed. God prevailed. And so what has happened in between chapter 1 and chapter 3 is that Jonah has now tasted the merciful kindness of God. And when a self-righteous, hard-hearted, rebellious person like Jonah experiences grace, change happens. 
This is how we change. This is the good news that says self-righteous, hard-hearted, even racist, egotistical men and women can change. Not by willpower, not by guilt, not by shame, but ultimately by grace. Now, this is not a testimony of instant perfection. It's not as though Jonah tasted some magic tonic and suddenly he's transformed into a fully sanctified prophet. Keep reading. He has room to grow. There's more growth to happen. But nevertheless, there's change. Can I encourage you? You need not forget this. Especially as you, you look at your growing children or your spouse. Or maybe you've gathered together just recently with family members who profess Christ. And you see great flaws. You see great weakness. You see great sin. If grace has taken root, God will prevail. We're not instantaneously sanctified. It is a process, but grace transforms nonetheless. And here Jonah testifies by his very actions of that experience. But notice the order. It's so important here. Grace, then obedience. Grace, then obedience. That is the pattern, and that is the order of Scripture. Think about what's given to us. Uh, think about the man Noah. Many of us know the story of Noah. We're told that Noah obeyed God, that he walked with God, and that he built this ark just as God commanded. If ever there was a word picture of obedience, it would be laboring to construct this massive boat. Noah was obedient. But as you read through that narrative and that familiar story, you must not overlook what we are told in Genesis 6, chapter 8. Before all of that is laid out, we are simply told, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Literally, God extended grace to Noah. And then we read of his obedience. Then we read of his faithfulness. Psalm 130, verse 4, says that those who fear the Lord are those who have found forgiveness in the Lord. Forgiveness, fear. There is a direct relationship. I've tasted something of God's grace and forgiveness. Now I fear him. I want to honor him. There's a sense of reverence that I did not have before. This is the pattern, this is the order. We come to the New Testament in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, as Paul instructs Titus, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Did you catch that? Grace trains us. Grace transforms us. Grace teaches us. We know something of grace as it has come to us, and we renounce ungodliness. We renounce worldly passions. We now desire to actually live self-controlled lives because of grace. Let me ask you straight away, do you want to change? Do you want to grow in godliness? 
Do you want to grow in sanctification, becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus? Then pray. Show me your mercy. Remind me afresh of the greatness of your grace. Help me to see my sin in light of your grace. Now, I recognize that might be 100% counterintuitive to how you would answer that question. Because if I asked you if you wanted to grow, if you wanted to become more like Christ, if you wanted to delight in obedience, you would immediately, because of our default position, begin to think of works of the law that we must do. They have their place. But real transformation, joy-filled obedience comes as a response to grace. Recognizing that God is an unobligated giver who gives unmerited gifts. If we want to grow in obedience, then we must grow in our understanding and delight in grace. Belief, excuse me, grace and obedience, the second theme is belief and repentance. Belief and repentance. We find this theme beginning in verse 5. Jonah goes, he proclaims, and then in verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word of the Lord reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his way and from the violence in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Belief. And repentance. It's quite ironic that the wicked and sinful city of Nineveh here becomes this model for us and how we respond to the word of God. Because that's what happened. The word of the Lord came to them through the mouth of Jonah. God's means was his prophet. Now how is it that we ought to, every time the word is read or preached, how are we to respond Belief and repentance. We respond by acknowledging that all that God says is good, that it's true, that it's beautiful. And where we find ourselves chafing against that, where we find ourselves saying, that's actually not good for me. Where we find ourselves living contrary to God's word in thought or word or deed, we repent. We believe that God is good and true and the rightful authority, and where our lives do not align with that, we repent. But this raises another very important question, because even in saying that, we cannot stop there. Even in saying belief and repentance, we must define terms. What do we mean by repentance? 
What does the Bible speak to? What is it that's typified here in these Ninevites? What is repentance? Because Paul warns us that there's a counterfeit version. There is a sort of repentance. There's a sort of sorrow that Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, he says, it's just a worldly sorrow, meaning it's run of the mill. Anybody can have this. You don't need to be born again for this sort of sorrow. But there is another sort of sorrow that he calls godly sorrow. And it's so important that we know the difference because this sort of worldly sorrow, it's a counterfeit. It's a cheap knockoff. It has no real value because worldly sorrow is merely external. It's self-preserving. It's self-centered, ultimately. And this worldly sorrow, it absolutely stands in contrast to what we see here and what is defined as godly sorrow. So it begs the question, what does genuine repentance look like? What does it sound like? Well, we need to look to the people of Nineveh. These themes of belief and repentance, if we want to understand repentance, we look to the Ninevites and we find that there's this account that we're, we're told a few things. We're told that there's this mourning over sin. We're told that they turn from sin. And then we're told that they turn towards God in faith. As we consider all three of those, we have a better grasp on what true repentance is. However, don't think of those things. You just heard three things, and if you're type A Americans, you just made a list and said, check one, check two, check three. Don't think of them as progressive steps you must first walk through. Like, okay, first do this, second do this, third do this. Think of them as simultaneous ingredients that make up repentance. Because, this is so important, because if we fall into this trap of somehow preparing ourselves before we turn to the Lord, well, I can't repent yet. I just need to feel more sorrow for my sin. I just need to search deeper for some other sin, and then I'll come. Then I'll turn to God. Now, we will make all sorts of mistakes. We believe repentantly, and we repent believingly, But if we look to these various elements within their repentance, what do we find? Well, specifically in verse 5, you notice that there is this sorrowful mourning over sin. That's the first element. True repentance involves a sorrowful mourning over sin. False repentance, it grieves. Don't be deceived. False repentance grieves over the consequences of sin. This would be a sadness and a grief over the embarrassment that a particular sin might bring. Over the shame that it brings upon you as being known as that type of person. The shame or the loss associated with those consequences. Real tears can be shed over those sort of things. Great wailing and bemoaning and apologies can be made over this sort of repentance but it's false because godly repentance grieves not over the consequences or how it makes me look. Godly sorrow grieves over the fact that this is sin and that this sin is against God and a defilement of everything that he called good. We see it as a defaming and a distortion of who God is and what he has declared. We lament, but not so much before how badly that we look, but for what this sin is and what it testifies of God and what we know to be true of him. 
The very thing that God has called good, we've called evil. The very thing that God deemed as evil, we've justified is somehow good for us. And we lament over that. It is over the perversion of this belief, of this offense of how we have mocked God, that we lament and we grieve. There is a sorrowful mourning over sin. There's a second element. True repentance also includes a turning from this sin. Genuine repentance is a change of mind issuing from a change of life. Nineveh, remember, had a reputation. They were notorious for violence and brutality. And hence this king's call to specifically, what does he tell them to do? Turn from the violence that's in your hands. He wasn't just pulling that out of thin air. He was thinking about the last city that they just raided, defeated, murdered, and pillaged. Turn from the violence that's in your hands. This is why in our repentance, we repent of actual sins. We name them, and we use the names that Scripture gives. We call them what God calls them. And then we turn from them. He said, this is violence. And your hands and my hands, they're guilty here. Because when the Ninevites looked down at their hands, they saw them stained with blood and violence. And they said, we must turn from this. What do you see when you look at your own life? What specific sins do you see that are a distortion of what God has announced to be good and right? That you in your own life somehow have twisted and justified as being excusable or understandable or permissible? What do you see? As you read God's word or kids, if you hear it read to you, what are the gaps between your practice and God's precepts? You know what I mean by that? This gap between how we live and what God has declared. When we think about those sort of things, those gaps, those practices, those distortions, those biblically informed observations, that helps guide our repentance. I'm not just confessing general sin. The word of God shines into my life and I see this. And I lament and I mourn. And I turn from it. That's what the word of God does when it comes to us. Genuine repentance mourns over sin. There's a turning from sin. But we're helped also in their example in verse 8. Because what we read there is that there is a turning to God in faith. Notice the king's words. He directs his people to call out mightily to God. Don't miss this. It's not faith in my repentance. Like, I really repented this time. <laughs> I know I'm good. It's not the zeal of our sorrow that we trust in. Ultimately, genuine repentance is placing all of who we are before God and what he has declared and said, I'm having faith in what you have said. I'm trusting in the promise that I have heard. That this is who I am, this is how I have sinned, and yet, I'm putting my faith in you. The king called them to call out mightily to God. 
It's God himself that we put our trust in. In essence, we're admitting that all our sin is just a failure to honor God as he is. God. We've turned from him and our head, our heart, and our hands towards something else that's contrary to him. And this is a key element of our repentance that we turn not just away, but towards God. Because if we stop at just merely turning away from something, that's just moralism. That is something that any person can do and not be regenerate. We turn towards God, the true and the living God, and we adore him, as we just sang this morning, for all that he is. We turn towards him, and it's our reminder that the pursuit of holiness is not just this frantic avoidance of certain sins. It's a face that's fixed at the triune God saying, I delight to serve you. I am entranced with who you are, and I want to honor you. That's holiness. Not just avoiding, but pursuing. Not just turning from, but here, turning towards God, fully looking to him. The second London Confession is so helpful here as it summarizes such large portions of scripture in a few sentences. Second London Confession, chapter 15, says this saving repentance, what we're talking about here, it's an evangelical grace. Listen to the summary whereby a person being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin, does, by faith in Christ, humble himself for it with godly sorrow, detestation of it, and self-abhorrency, praying for pardon and strength of grace with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing things. So what a beautiful and helpful example we're given here in the life of this king. What he did and the description of it, it paints a vivid picture for us. You cannot read this and not begin to picture this in your mind's eye. Imagine if you were there in the king's palace when you, you heard the word announced and it comes to the king and, and he responds. How does he respond? Well, he rises from his throne, his robe falls from his shoulders, it puddles to the ground. He then puts on this uncomfortable, unflattering, humble attire of sackcloth. He descends from his throne. Instead of being covered in regal luxury, he's seated in the dirt and he covers himself with ashes. There is no more visible way to say, I am wrong. I am low. I am guilty. And as a spectator in the king's court, you would have been shocked. Because I guarantee you, you never saw the king dress like that. Or sit like that. Or humble himself like that. And rightly so, because repentance is meant to be visible. It's meant to be seen. The king is a model for us. Rising from his throne, humbling himself, he models what he calls his people to do. He's a good king in that way. The king of Nineveh offered the best possible service he could ever give in leading them. He led them in a pattern of repentance. He called them to something, and then he led out by example. What sort of influence has God given you? You're not the king of Nineveh. But what sort of influence has God given you in your home, 
at work? Do you have younger brothers or sisters? God's given you a, a measure of influence over them. Think of that influence that you have, whatever it might be, and then ask yourself, am I leading in repentance? Am I modeling the very repentance that I see here that marks out a true Christian? I think it's for good reason that Luther stressed that all of life is repentance. If you read his 95 theses, that's one of the first major talking points he wants to bring up. He had discovered that repentance is not just this one-time act that we do, somehow confusing it with conversion, like, oh, I repented in the 70s. All of life is repentance. Repentance is the posture of the Christian. Because as long as we go on sinning, we continue to walk in repentance, to mourn sin, to turn from sin, and to turn by God in faith. Brothers and sisters, as we read the account of Jonah, we ought to be tremendously encouraged. We can't move on from this without pointing this out. Sometimes the people that you think would never respond to God's word actually do. How often are we guilty of looking at a person's behavior, hearing something about their worldview and their beliefs, maybe you ate turkey this weekend, and then assume clearly they're not interested in the gospel? And we just make that leap. It's the last person I would ever expect to put their faith in God. And that's the assumption that we make. Well, how do you know? How do I know? Do we believe that God will most certainly judge sin? Do we believe that God delights in showing mercy? Well, then why would we not speak up? If those two things are equally as true, God will judge sin and God delights in mercy, what prevents me from sharing from speaking, from trying to direct the conversation towards spiritual matters, looking for an inroad, looking for an option to speak of Christ, to speak of the grace that he gives. One pastor and scholar put it this way, revival often comes when the church begins to take this situation with seriousness. When, like Jonah, it is awakened to the needs of men and women who do not know God. But it is vital to recognize that Jonah was not sent to Nineveh with the assurance of being a revivalist. He was sent there as an evangelist. Revival is needed and we must pray for it. But evangelism is the divine command. I think specifically in Reformed, confessional, historic, Protestant, Puritan-loving tradition, we talk sometimes about praying for revival and we ought to. But we overlook that revival comes because men and women evangelize. God uses means. Somebody opened their mouth and began to proclaim Christ. Somebody opened the word of God and began to read. And so what we pray for and what we long for is what comes here to Nineveh, mindful that God delights to have mercy. So may God continue to break our hearts with this true sense of the weight of sin and the hope of mercy. In fact, pray for gospel opportunities this week. Pray that God would give you opportunities to speak of Christ, even if it's just one little sliver of a sentence to be able to 
have something to build upon next time. We pray for the Spirit's work. So we have considered the themes of grace and obedience, belief and repentance. What's the final theme that we see here? Well, it's that of kindness and mercy. It's there in verse 10. Did you see it? When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The final verse in chapter 3 is tremendously good news because it testifies this. It testifies that God shows mercy to people who deserve judgment. It says that God is unbelievably kind to those who have a reputation for wickedness. But in this great discovery, we run up against a very important issue that must be clarified. Because, did you notice it? We read there that it says God relented. Well, stop to think about that for a moment. As wonderful as that is, think through that. Is this saying that God changed in response to what transpired in Nineveh? Zoom out a little bit bigger. Does God change in response to what happens in human history? If we say yes, then we have to allow for the possibility that there is change, even if so slight, even if we would say for the good, that God can somehow shift and move through time. This is concerning, because if that is true, if there's any change in the Godhead, just how secure then is his promise to have mercy and extend grace upon sinners? Because if God changes over here, couldn't he change over here? So what exactly does this phrase, God relented, mean? And how do we understand it alongside the broader illumination of Scripture? Again, I think the confession helps us get our bearings as to what the Scriptures teach this is chapter 2 concerning the triune God. It says, he is a perfectly pure spirit. He's invisible, has no body, parts, or changeable emotions. He alone has immortality, dwelling in light that no one can approach. He is unchangeable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, in every way, infinite, absolutely holy, perfectly wise, wholly free, completely absolute. Our God as taught in the scriptures and summarized there, does not change. If you continue reading throughout church history, Calvin spoke of God's truth as accommodating us in our capacity as finite creatures. He, he would talk really helpfully about this, about how as if God, or as if a mother talking to a child speaking in a way that is accommodating that young child so that child might understand and comprehend. That's how God speaks to us. In the immensity of who he is, as he communicates with us, he accommodates us in our frame, speaking to us in a way that we would understand. In this way, we could speak of Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, is God's accommodation to us, written from a perspective so that we might understand. Here's what I mean. Here's Calvin in his full context. What, therefore, does the word relent mean? 
Surely its meaning is like that of all other modes of speaking that describe God for us in human terms. For because God, or excuse me, because of our weakness, does not attain to his exalted state, the description of him that is given to us must be accommodated to our capacity so that we may now understand it. Now the mode of accommodation is for him to represent himself, listen, not as he is in himself, but as he seems to us. What he's saying is this, when we read God relented, it's not as God is in himself, but as it would seem to us. Here's what we're getting at. Sometimes in scripture, God uses anthropomorphic language, ascribing human attributes or characteristics to God, right? Like God sees, God hears, God relented. Sometimes scripture uses this sort of language in order to accommodate our finite perception, the mother speaking to a child, okay? If you were in Nineveh, you heard the preaching 40 days, 40 days, Nineveh, then judgment. And you thought about your guilt. You knew your evil. You looked at your hands and you said, these have been quick to shed blood. At that moment, you would have said, we're good as dead. Because I know my guilt. And I just heard this word. We are as good as dead. But then what would happen? You heard 40 days, but then you would have seen that on that 40th day and then the 41st day, disaster didn't come. Judgment did not happen. And you would have said, it seems like God has relented. What seems to have been certain has appeared to have changed. From a finite human perspective, it would appear that something has changed, but in reality, the unchanging and eternal purposes were rolling on perfectly. Scripture uses accommodating language to help us understand God not as he is, but as he seems to us that we might lay hold of the truths that are here. So why don't we go down this rabbit trail? Because it's no rabbit trail at all is absolutely the main path by which we must understand the truth of scripture. Being aware of these matters helps us as students of the Bible to rightly read and interpret the scriptures as God intends. So as we read this narrative unfold in Nineveh, we're led to this one inescapable conclusion. God is a merciful God. He does not give sinners what they deserve. He delights in mercy. And the pattern of scripture, it testifies that if we would turn from our ways, if we would repent of our sin, that God delights to have mercy, that he turns towards us, that he relents, that he has compassion. And that's why we sing with great joy, though our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. It is precisely because God is unchanging that we are encouraged, commanded even, to repent. The very fact that God does not change is the very reason why every soul here this morning 
must consider the great responsibility and joy to repent. Think about it. If God is unfailing and unflinching in his wrath against sin, that means that there is no wavering in his opposition towards sin. Therefore, you must repent. And equally is true. There is no wavering in his delight for mercy. He waits to be gracious to you. He exalts himself and delights to show mercy. Therefore, you must repent. The two truths stand next to each other. God judges sin. God delights in mercy. These two things will never change because God does not change. The only path forward through those two truths for your life to make any sense and to find any joy and hope is through the gateway, the pathway of repentance. This is why we can affirm both realities. God will most definitely judge all sin and all wickedness. He will most certainly visit all sin with the intensity and fury of his wrath. And at the same breath, we can say, yet he has sent his son into the world to bear the sins of his people and all who put their trust in him, he will most certainly save. The response of the Ninevites, then, it stands as this great monument and this great witness to it because the, the belief and the repentance of God's mercy and judgment testifies to everyone that God will be gracious to repentant sinners. In fact, Christ himself brought this up. And Jesus calls every single one of us to actually look to Nineveh and consider. So we find in his teaching in Matthew chapter 12, Verse 40, he says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What is Christ saying? saying that the response of Nineveh stands up in the scriptures as this great testimony, this great monument for everybody to stand and look at. Their repentance and God's mercy, it sets forth as this testimony of who God is and how he will receive every humble sinner who turns to him in faith. And the same promise is extended here this morning as God's word has been proclaimed. Christ offers forgiveness to every believing, repentant person who places their trust in his promise. This is undeserved favor given by an unobligated giver. But at the same time, anyone who refuses God's offer of mercy, anyone who hardens their hearts, digs in their heels, it will not just be Jesus who bears witness against you in the last day. Christ says it will actually be the city of Nineveh will also come to the witness stand. Because they had Jonah, a mere man, flawed as he was, deliver the word of God and they repented. But we in God's kindness and redemptive history stand in a certain place where we not just have Old Testament prophets, disobedient 
men like Jonah, we have the word of Christ that has come to us. We have the word of Christ that reveals to us the Father, a much fuller revelation The Christ himself this morning is amongst his church and he calls out and he proclaims this is true. Something greater than Jonah has come. That's why Nineveh stands as his great monument and testament to all. You and I, we hear the very words of Christ. The Son of God has come. And as we enter into this season, we say on top of that, and he's coming again. We anticipate the return of Christ, the restoration of all things, the judgment to come. Christ is the true and greater prophet who testifies not only of the judgment to come, but of the promise of forgiveness for all who trust in him. Because he is most definitely a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love relenting from disaster. Let's look to him now. Heavenly Father, we do look to you this morning in response to the the goodness and the authority of your word, we respond in humble faith. And how thankful we are to know that you are both the one who is perfectly just and yet the one who justifies the ungodly. Father, we rejoice knowing that if it were not for your Son and the work of the cross, we would be those without hope. But we place all our confidence, all our trust in the promise of your own word. Father, as we've gathered here on yet another Lord's Day and we head into another week, we ask that you would keep our eyes fixed on you and our affections wrapped around this wonderful promise of your mercy. Send us out as those rejoicing in mercy, excited, those longing for others to hear and to know. Father, we do pray very specifically for gospel opportunities this week, gospel conversations that we might bring the word of truth to listening ears, that you might bring your people to yourself to the praise of your glorious grace. Do this that you might receive the honor, the praise, and the fame that you are due. In Christ's name, amen.